This morning's reading comes from Colossians 3, uh, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you had to be deaf or not paying attention to notice that we're focused on love this morning. The first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. But I want to begin um, in a different kind of way. I'm not going to quote the Bible, refer to it at all. I'm actually going to quote some lyrics from some songs, popular culture, See if you can identify them. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. And that is the Beatles. Anybody know when it was released? 1967. I thought Doobie would get that. I think Doobie played for the Beatles. No, he didn't like <laughs> Not really. All right, how about this one? What's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? That is? Tina Turner, man, you guys are good. Released in what year? Missed it bad, 1984. Now, it might have been released before, but it became really re-released and popular in 1984 with Tina Turner. What's the point of starting a sermon with those lyrics? It's to say, what's the definition of love? Everybody seems to think it's a good idea. What happened? It's a matter of fact for the Beatles in the 1960s and in the 70s, that was right in the middle of the nastiest part right, of Vietnam. The message was love and peace, man. And if you just tap into love and peace, everything's going to be all right. Our world will be a beautiful place. And it didn't happen. Now, you might say, well, that's because nobody was paying attention to the Beatles. I don't think so. I think a whole lot of people were paying attention to the Beatles. Or you might say, it's because the notion of love was really, really nebulous, and it sort of lacked substance. It was just like, don't be mean. Love. Isn't it interesting that 20 years later, roughly, 67 to 84, Tina Turner makes a song famous What's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Why should I give my heart when my heart's going to be broken? Maybe it's an expression of the failure of popular culture in the 60s. Some sociologists see it that way. A lot of sociologists see 
the 80s as a reaction to the 60s in a variety of ways. Many times they reference things like excessive materialism. I'm no sociologist, I'm not going to go there, but I am painting a contrast, and you can see it, right? Now, Tina Turner might not have been talking about global peace. She definitely was talking about herself as an individual and others who were listening. Guard your heart. Don't open it up to love. So what is love? Great thing, but we probably should understand it in order to embrace it. Or put another way, we probably ought to understand it in order not to embrace a faux love. A love that's not real. So here's what I want to suggest, among other things. I I want to suggest four things about love. The first thing I want to suggest about love is that love, properly understood, has to be rightly ordered. That is to say, there can be forms of love if we translate love as a passionate affection for something that could actually be wrong, right? As a matter of fact, you probably know that there are people in the world who actually love violence. There's some people in the world who actually love control and power to such an extent that they are are inclined towards, because of their appetites, actually towards abuse. It's a love. That's just a wrong kind of love. It's a love that's disordered. But in a loose definition, it's a love or a passion. Suppose I told you that I love fast sports cars. And, you know, I just love them. I, by the way, that's not my deal. So if you said something like, love a great pickup truck, I probably would say, yeah, I get that one. But I'm just using another illustration so it doesn't cut close to me. You know, I want to be safe about this, guard my heart. What what if I said to you I love sports cars? Then the one I love the most is an American-made sports car, a Corvette. I love sports cars, especially Corvettes, so much. I've got books all over my house about Corvettes. I've gone to the museum in Kentucky, the Corvette Museum, a dozen times. I make a pilgrimage there every single year. I love Corvettes. You might say, that's no big deal. I mean, it's your thing, not mine. I don't really like Corvettes that much, but you can love them. But what if I said, or what if you said, it seems like to me your love of Corvettes is greater than your love for your family. Oh, now that would be a problem, right? Then all of a sudden, the object of my love, as you can see, easy to see this, is wrongly ordered. I have placed Corvettes up here and my wife and my children down here. Nothing wrong with loving a Corvette. But there's something wrong when I make it into an improperly ordered 
love. Well, what about disordered loves? In the passage in Galatians chapter 5, in the passage in Colossians chapter 3, we see an example of that. Paul says love, love, love. But in those same passages, linked to them is also a list of vices that we should avoid. Or, put it another way, sin is a disordered love. We want to categorize sin sometimes and make it, well, almost like you can handle it. Don't do this, don't do this, that's wrong and this is wrong. Actions and that sort of thing. But Paul's not suggesting that in this passage. He's not just saying certain things, certain actions are wrong. He's talking about vices of the heart. He's talking about loves that are disordered. So how do you understand sin? You understand it as a disordered love. For instance, let's just take three things that he mentions in both of these passages. Sexual immorality. Sexual activity is an absolutely beautiful pleasure ordained by God. Straight up. But it can be wrongly ordered. And it becomes hard on the person and hard on another. It's a form of a disordered love. Not the way you were designed to live. No doubt of love, but it's disordered. That's sexual immorality, says Paul. Or what about this? Idolatry. Let's just think Old Testament for a minute, okay? Let's just think ancient culture. What comes to mind when you think of an idol? Somebody say it. Yeah, golden calf. Daryl said the golden calf. That's a great one. Somebody fashioned that thing, right? Who did? Aaron. I don't know what kind of craftsman he was, but he fashioned it out of gold in such a way that everybody recognized it. There was some artistic beauty in that thing. Now, Aaron might not have been the penultimate architect of a particular kind of image, but there were other artisans who could make beautiful idols, whether they're calves or whether they're people. Matter of fact, the history of art is a beautiful thing, and in the context of the church, some of the greatest art in the history of the world emerges. Have you ever been to St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome? I have. And I looked at statues, I'll call them statues, sculptures, were made by Michelangelo. The Pieta is one of them. Absolutely stunning. A young mother, Mary, holds in her arm the limp body of her adult child, Jesus. It's amazing. Do you know what the iconoclastic controversy in the history of the church was? It was people arguing over whether objects like that ought to be in the church. 
The people that argued that objects like that should not be in the church were primarily the Eastern Church, the Greek Orthodox Church. They said if we have objects like that in the church before long, we're going to venerate the object itself and it will become a form of idolatry. So the church in the East said, we're not going to have three-dimensional objects, we're just going to have images on the wall and on the ceiling. So if you go into Greek Orthodox Church, there's this beautiful art all over the wall and the ceiling, images of prophets and saints and all kinds of stuff and angels but there's nothing you can hold. That was a huge controversy. One of the things that split the East from the West wasn't the only thing, but a big part of it. Why? Because they were worried. They were worried that something that was beautiful and could be considered sacred at some level, this work of art could become an idol. So what's wrong with idolatry? It's taking that or something else in your life and placing it ahead of God. That's idolatry. A wrongly ordered love. Or just one more. Drunkenness. That's another list of vices. Some of you might be offended by this, but those of you who know me will know not to take offense. Or I hope you don't. There's nothing wrong with the fruit of the vine. Nothing wrong with alcohol. There's something wrong with drunkenness. Why? Because the love or affection of a particular beverage takes precedent over everything else. And that love becomes wrongly ordered. I know it's far more complicated than that, drunkenness, but you get the idea. We could go through all of those vices and we could show how those vices are actually in and of themselves good when properly ordered, but when disordered, they become sin. So love, in order to be love, according to the Scripture, should be rightly ordered. The second thing about love according to the Scripture, and you see it in this passage, but especially in 1 Corinthians 13, love is the regulative principle, okay? In Colossians, Paul says this. He says, I want you to live this way with kindness, and he lists these really fruit of the Spirit that you see in Galatians 5, and then he says, but above all those, I want them to be bound together with love, I want love to be the, the adhesive and the information that informs all those actions or lifestyle. I want it bound together by love. In 1 Corinthians, he puts it a little differently, but saying the same thing. He basically says there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. It's not because love won a beauty contest where there were three, faith, hope, and love, and love won. That's not the point. Love is the greatest because it is the unifier of all the gifts, Paul says, right? The gifts are worthless otherwise. He gets really kind of radical with his language and exaggerated. He says, in effect, faithfulness doesn't matter without love. And if you're a critic like me, you say, no, wait a minute. Paul, you're kind of stepping over the edge here. He was. He was stepping over the edge for a reason. Because you know as well as I do that faithfulness in a marriage is absolutely admirable. My wife would really like for me to love her fully. 
But in the absence of my full love, she would at least like to have faithfulness. Faithfulness is a vehicle for love. Otherwise, faithfulness might be begrudging duty. And even though it's a good, it's not beautiful. Or good deeds. You know a good deed might be used just to make you look better. You might exercise all kinds of good deeds just to find favor with other people or the IRS or whatever else. Uh, Doing good deeds is a wonderful thing, but if not attached to love, Paul says, nothing. Morality without love? You know morality without love, right? You've been there. It's rigid. It's harsh. It's awful. It's called legalism. That's morality without love. Pleasure without love? We've all experienced that. It's self-destructive and often destructive to the other. So love, it should be rightly ordered in order to be true love. And love is a regulative principle. But there's a third thing. Love involves an enormous risk. Love is absolutely essential for life. You were created to love God and to love others. And you cannot ignore love and have a full life because you will numb all your emotions and basically you'll live in a tomb, a tomb of self. To quote another songwriter and singer, Nat King Cole, It's better to have loved and have lost than not to have loved at all. Or to put it in words of one of my favorite Christian authors that you know well, C.S. Lewis, he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, You must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will be broken. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only, oh, this is gripping. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from love and its dangers is hell. Wow. Love is definitely a risk, and it's worth taking, because it's life. The final point, and I go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 
Love is eternal. Let me read the verses. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Prophecies are about knowledge of God. Don't need it anymore. Where there are tongues, there'll be silence. Where there's knowledge, this human knowledge that we have is great, but it'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childhood or childish things. For now we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because it's eternal. And at that point, the others are not necessary. I want to conclude with three notions concerning cultivating love. We're talking about Galatians 5 and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. So the question is, how do you cultivate love? And my first suggestion is you accept the love of God. Accept it. I heard a missionary once talk about an experience that he had had in a retreat. It was for missionaries who were overworked, underpaid, and guilt-ridden, trying to advance the kingdom of God and having big dreams and hopes. So we were all together, and the speaker had, on one occasion, only one message it wasn't like he preached it. It was just that he said it to all of us. And he said, I want you to think about this. Stop everything else and think about this. God loves you completely. In spite of the fact that you feel like you're a failure. In spite of the fact that you have worked so hard and expected different results. In spite of the fact that you've invested in friends and family and they've either betrayed you or walked away. In spite of everything, God loves you. Pretty simple message. But when delivered, the missionary said, I couldn't stop crying. I was exhausted from work. I was trying to do the right thing. I felt like a failure. And then I realized God loves me. You need to accept that in order to cultivate it. 
You need to first receive it and believe it. And then love can be cultivated and born in your life. Can I just stop for a minute and ask a question? Have you ever received it? Have you heard about it and never really took it in? Have you kind of believed it up here, but haven't taken God's love completely in? There's nothing more important in life. And there would be nothing more important in this service than for you to walk out of this building having said, I accept God that you love me. Exactly as I am. The second recommendation for cultivating love is that you ask for the love of God. It's one thing to receive the love of God. And if all we did was receive the love of God, we would be narcissistic fools. We would be self-saturated with our own importance. But the cure to that is to receive the love of God, to accept it, and then ask for God's love within us. This is not something I'm asking you to earn or that Paul is asking you to earn. He's basically saying, understand and receive the love of God. Let it envelop all the other attributes, the virtues. Let it be the primary condition of your existence. Receive the love of God. Accept it. And how do you do that? You ask for it. You ask, God, will you give me your love for the other? It's not easy or natural for me because I'm so self-saturated. But God, I understand and accept your deep love for me. Now please give me that love for others, for my world. I guarantee you he will not reject your request. Because he created you to receive his love and to express his love. He created you so you could experience his love so that your life would flow over in divine love. So God, I accept your love for me. I don't understand it. It boggles my mind. I know I'm not good enough. Why? But I accept. And and now I ask, Lord, that you just give me some of your love. And the third thing is act on it. Now here, my friends, I'm not saying earn it. I'm not saying act on the love of God that he's given given to you so you can be better. Act on the love of God so you can earn more of his love. None of those things is true of what I'm trying to suggest. I'm saying that you need to act on God's love. He has given his love to you. You ask for that love to be a part of your life, and then instead of just wallowing in the love, you act upon it. So here's the assignment going out. Very, very simple and hard at the same time. Pause for a moment, and I literally am going to give you a moment. And find that person or persons that you either despise, or have a hard time loving.
You got them? Don't tell me if it's me. I can't take it. Now, act on God's love for that person in two ways. Do something. Do something for them. The person that drives you crazy, the person you wish like everything you didn't have to see tomorrow, act on the love of God do something for them. So here's the other thing. When you get a note from somebody this week that was in church on Sunday morning, don't assume that they hated you, okay? It might not be that. But act on it, right? Just act on it. Um, sometimes I wonder if I should say things. But I will. Acting on love produces love. really does. So, following uh, the first service, I don't know what that was. Following the first service, someone came up to me and said, um, that was really, really helpful to me, right on target. I needed it. Um, He said, but I want to tell you something. Um, so I'm on my way to see my wife. And his wife is in an Alzheimer's unit. And she's been there for six years. And he said, I've loved her all my life. But I've never loved her as much as I have. Yeah, you guessed it, in the last six years. She can't give back to him. And still he loves. Why? Because he determined that even though everything had changed, he would keep going and keep loving and expressing his love. That's what I'm suggesting you do. Act on it. Because it'll happen when you do. I said act on it, and I want to give you one way you can act on it. That person in your mind, pray for them. It's really hard to hate someone when you're praying for them. Just try it. And see if this week the fruit of the Spirit called love will be cultivated in your life by faith. Let's pray. Lord, your uh, love and, and goodness are overwhelming. Yeah, they're reckless. Your overwhelming love and goodness. Um, Seems absolutely absurd sometimes, but it's true. And in the words of that beautiful old hymn, we're we're the entire ocean 
a place where you could drop a quill. And if every stock in the universe was a quill, and if every person in the universe was a scribe by trade, we couldn't begin to drain the ocean dry by using it as ink to inscribe your love. So Lord, we pray that because we believe that, you will make us instruments of that kind of love. First, help us to believe it. And second, help us to act on it. And we'll thank you in the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.